Hey everyone, it's Mark, and welcome back to Article Club, where every month we read, annotate, and discuss one great article on race, education, or culture. I'm very, very happy that you're here, because this month we're going to be focusing on the article Motherland by Jia Young Fan, which was published in The New Yorker last September. It is an extremely deep and personal piece, and so I'm particularly honored that Ms. Fan generously agreed to answer our questions. In this interview, she shares very authentically about a range of topics, so I hope that you'll listen, and also I hope that you read the article and join us this month in our discussion on Sunday, January 24th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time over at articleclub.org. All right, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Jai Young, and I hope that you enjoy it. Thanks so much for doing this. This is like really, really a huge honor, so thank you. Oh no! Thank you for thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad you guys like the piece and are are reading it. I always like the idea of an article club. I've been trying to do that with my own friends because it's really hard for me to get through a book. Like I have a time to get through a book that's not for work, and I and in the pandemic especially, it's so nice to be able to talk about what you're reading before you read 500 page before you finish reading 500 pages of something. So an article club seems kind of a brilliant way to, to, to do that. And I kind of wish there were more of them, not just book clubs. Yeah, there's not very many. And so it was so funny. One of my friends was like, you got to get Jai Young on because she's on Twitter saying that she wants to be part of an article club. Oh. I was like, great. Okay, well, let's invite her. <laughs> Twitter is just small. Twitter really does contract the world, doesn't it? Yes. And because of that, so many people messaged me. And now like a few friends have like, and I are, are kind of part of this fledgling article club but that's so yeah it's to me so funny that I made it all the way to you yeah it's really great I'm just so happy to be able to talk to you for a few minutes with some of our questions so is it okay if we dive in yeah of course cool so I think the thing that everybody talks about is just how personal a piece this is. And article clubbers have appreciated all of your reporting and writing, but they definitely want to know how and why you decided to write this piece. Right. So I have to confess that I didn't set out to write a memoir, and I didn't set out to include details that are some of the most personal that I've ever written. It really started out in... The worst months of the pandemic here in New York City, which was March and April, and I was very worried about my mother, who lives in a nursing home and is on a ventilator. And there was a time, as mentioned in the piece, when her aide, her health aide, could no longer stay by her side. And as a result, I was very panicked that she couldn't survive in a nursing home, even for a few days without the help of her aide. So I went on to Twitter to appeal for help, and it gained much more publicity than I initially expected. And ultimately, I was able to help the her health aide regain entry to the nursing home, which I was very happy about. But a very unfortunate consequence of that entire very public episode was that Chinese nationalists knew about this very private plight of mine, and I became the target of a lot of online harassment. And I was accused of betraying China from the previous reporting that I had done on China, some of which pertained 
to Chinese politics, so I never really write about Chinese politics straight on. So this is a long way of answering your question. It really started when I, the depth of you know my my, my anxiety about how to, how to respond to all of this and even to respond to all of this when editors suggested that I write about the phenomenon of Chinese trolls, of Chinese nationalist trolls. And I began by talking to a few experts in Chinese social media about what was going on. But as I started writing, I realized that just by writing about this phenomenon, I was calling them trolls. And I was uncomfortable with that term because even though many of the names they called me, you know, Chinese bitch, and, uh, you know, had very graphic descriptions of how they wanted me to die. It was very clear to me that these were human beings on the other side. And there was something very visceral about their anger and their fury that I wanted to investigate and that I didn't want to deny them the humanity that they didn't necessarily want to extend to their targets. So as I started writing a piece unpacking the sociopolitical significance of transnational trolls, I realized that the story wouldn't be complete if I didn't enter into the psychology of trolling in the first place and penetrate that sense of anger that is the engine of sending anonymous messages over the internet. And when I started thinking about these people on the other side of the world writing me, I started thinking about my own life and the kind of fury and bitterness and utter despair that has been the undercurrent of so much of my mother's life and so much of my own life. And I started filling in those pieces in in this essay that really had nothing really to do with my own personal history in the beginning. And then this almost as if I was weaving a tapestry, you know, a clearer picture emerged that I think better explained to me what was going on and hopefully better explains to the readers what was going on, both, I think, in the internet drama of the pandemic, but also what it's like to be an immigrant and to feel so deeply indebted to your native country and the one that you are and the one that you later adopt, and to also feel such a profound sense of ambivalence about your place in both these worlds and the space between these worlds. So that's how the, the essay came about. Yeah, thank you for that. Definitely at the beginning, it seems like you're exploring the trolling in just very graphic detail about the language that you spoke to. But then what's so interesting is that toward the middle or even before the middle, it goes much more to you and your mother and the relationship that you have with her. I was wondering if you could share an early memory of you and your mom, just because it seems like right from the beginning, the relationship that you have with your mom was just so strong. Right. I mean, my my mother is has always been so very fiercely devoted to her own parents, to her, to the family that she was born into, to her, her later profession as um, a doctor and the medical compound that we um, lived in. And I knew from a very early age 
the fierce way in which she loved me, which translates into the need to provide to me as if I were a piece of her flesh. And, and she's a woman with such a strong survivalist, pragmatic instinct, a woman of you know, sharp intelligence and knew that she had to navigate the world in order to be a part of the world. So, you know, my earliest uh, memories of her are of her fending for me, you know, making sure that I got the best of everything that she could find. And this was late 80s China. So there wasn't very much. I mean, we weren't, you know, we, we weren't the, the elite. So China at the time was still relatively poor, but also the kind of uncompromising allegiance that she demanded from me. That dynamic of the relationship was very aware to me from an early age. And, you know, a very kind of small example would be, I've been thinking about this recently, is just her wanting me, you know, at the time there weren't very many nutritious foods that were available to young children. She just really wanted me to drink milk because it was precious and she wanted me to be developing uh, well as a four and a five-year-old. And I just was not a child who ever liked milk. And the very conflicted feeling a child has when she knows she's drinking something that is precious, that her that her mother is giving her to consume because it is of great value and also having to swallow the nausea of just uh, a gastric system that does not want to accept milk. You know, it's just not one of those foods that it was warm milk. <laughs> it was not particularly, um, you know, appetizing. And that conflict between kind of the rational self knowing that it is that this milk is provided out of love and, you know, a true um, uh, desire to for my well-being and my reflexive, uh, you know, disgust with this thing that I had to consume is a very complicated emotion, and it 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 probably foreshadows a lot of what you know comes later on in the in the piece itself. Feeling, you know, and and, and also just learning about the shape of those emotions, the complicatedness that is part and parcel of 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 I think the deepest human emotions. Yeah, thank you for sharing that about the milk and the complicated emotions. It seems like they continue once you immigrate to Connecticut. Like in the piece, you you talk about the mutual reliance for life. And you also talk about your immigrant experience, sort of like living a double life. And so in those t- in those teenage years, because so many of article clubbers are also teachers, can you speak a little bit about how did that complicate your relationship with your mother? So my mother became a housekeeper in Greenwich, a very affluent Connecticut town to support us. And her, her overarching goal in situa- situating us there was to give me not only an education, but a tier one education, the best education that she could find in the U.S., and that led to this very bifurcated existence for the both of us. On the one hand, being in one of the wealthiest towns in America. I mean, I think now, as it was then, Greenwich is it's very homogenous. It is very waspy. And it is, I think, fueled largely by fund money or money from you know, Wall Street. 
you know, working at um, investment banks. And those and, 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 and many of those bankers were people that my mother um, worked for herself. And I was her plus one. On the one hand, we were living in mansions in the maid quarter of these mansions, but nevertheless, very close and per- up close and personal to the lives of America's 1%, possibly 0.1%. On the other hand, we were very aware of our place as servants, essentially, to, to America's wealthy. And it is from this complicated domestic situation that then I was able to attend Greenwich Academy a very wealthy private school and receive uh, the education that my mother wanted for me. And it breathes, I think, in a person as an impressionable um, adolescent as I was at the time, um, probably a, a, a misshapen sense of the world as a place where I have such a large number of desires that can never be realized, both material and, you know, wanting to see myself as a person that I didn't feel such a tremendous amount of shame about and living a situation in which I didn't have to feel so deeply embarrassed about on a daily, on a daily basis. And for my mother, it was impossibly difficult. I mean, being literally a maid and, and falling to a position from a physician, which was the job she had in China, and 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 having and having to cycle through those feelings of what must have just been bitterness and despondence and 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 injustice that she could never articulate, possibly not even to herself. It must have been frightening to her, but it was a kind of terror that she didn't even allow herself to. To, to to say aloud or to express to anyone. So, you know, it was a very strange biosphere that the two of us were living in for a long stretch of time. Can you say more about the whole piece about the public versus private? I guess what I'm asking is that later in your piece, you talk about this concept of face and losing face. Can you say a little bit more about that concept and how it relates to your and your mother's relationship? Yeah, the idea of having of, of having a face, of wearing a public face was so integral to my mother's sense of herself even in China where having face and saving face is ingrained part of your existence. I don't remember specific moment in which I learned that concept. It was almost in the air that I breathed. It was it felt atmospheric. And I think it has its roots in a culture that really guards the privacy of the family and that really takes seriously the notion that dirty laundry, as it were, is not to be aired in public, which is, you know, to say that, you know, family strife or the complications within a family are never to be shared with outsiders. And I think my mother always guarded her dignity the way that she has guarded everything else in her life, you know, with such, with such fierce kind of uncompromising loyalty to, to that barrier between the outside and the inside. And in China, uh, society then it is now that is so, um, you know, 
unequal in many ways. And so, and that is so deeply judgmental of people who do not abide by cultural or social norms. Having that face is incredibly important to a person's identity and sense of self. So when you move, when you carry that notion with you to your adopted country, as my mother did, as I, as I did, and feeling like you've fallen from at least, you know, this middling person society in which if not, even if you were not um, a celebrated figure, my mother never had any reason to feel ashamed of herself. And then making this very painful bargain with yourself to, to sacrifice what you have of yourself to the future of your children and then lose any sense of any preserve of dignity that you had toward that end. That must have been unimaginably painful for my mother. And I think it must, I think that is on the other side of so much of the, of the fury and bitterness and, you know, corrosive self-loathing that she herself probably wouldn't even fully admit to. When you ask what is that dynamic like between the you know public sense of self and the private one, I think it became incalculably exacerbated in the U.S. because she immediately lost all sense of self-respect toward this goal that, unfortunately, you know, her daughter's education, which is ultimately um, thankless one because she couldn't, my, you know, achievements, whatever, whatever they might be, could never fill the hole in her that was this bottomless absence of self-respect. And I think that was the, that, that's one of the great tragedies of immigration. And I know that my story is not particularly unique in that in this respect. I know, but I also don't want to say that this is the only immigrant story, but you do hear often stories of parents sacrificing for their children and feeling like their children can never fully appreciate what the parent has done. And this is also why I believe that the dynamics fundamentally psychologically unhealthy. But of course, the concept of psychological health is another luxury that neither my mother nor I could have afforded at the time. So this is just all very long way of answering, you know, having, you know, uh, having, having self-respect and dignity is not, it's not something that all immigrants, um, especially immigrants living in compromised situations can afford. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sure that Along with her diagnosis, that sense of dignity probably became even more magnified, this idea of face. Do you think that that's accurate? Definitely. I think that the, the diagnosis, the shock of it was like entering into a foreign country all over again. The, the, the complete loss of control, the, the, the failure of having any reference points, and, and also to have to surrender to a disease that, as I write, makes such a mockery of uh, self-control and of an ability to, to, to present yourself in a way that is not embarrassing. I think this disease in particular, the ALS, is, is cruel precisely because you are, you are acutely aware of the spectacle you have become to the public. 
I mean, and, and by, you know, by skeptical, it is a grim, you know, completely skeptical that is stripped of all dignity. And ALS is a neurodegenerative disease where, at least in my mom's case, her, her cognitively, she's completely intact, but she has lost all control of almost every muscle in her body. And uh, she has to be tended to almost 24-7. And, uh, you know, when she moved to the U.S. from China, all she could do in the absence of familial support and financial financial support was to use her body, I mean, literally, to provide for me and her. And now she has lost that last refuge over which she has any has had over which she has had any control, and and that is just indescribably humiliating for her. But then in the piece, it seems that things change with COVID and what happens at the end of March and April in New York with your mother in the nursing home and the decisions that you have to make. Specifically in the piece, you write that saving face would not rescue my mother. And so if it's okay, could you share a little bit about why do you feel like you did decide to go to Twitter and to the public for help, given all of this with your mother, this relationship, and this value of face? Right. So, you know, being, I think being a child, you often see so much of your you often spend so much of your life pulling away from your parents and rejecting some of their dogmas and and trying to live in a way that escapes the mistakes that you perceive they have made in their lives. And I spent you know so much of my adult young adulthood trying to you know reach for the freedom that my education has given me and my kind of assimilated american existence has given me that by its nature has put a certain distance between my mother and i you know i think of myself as a liberal person with progressive values and who believes in um in in psychological health for example and believe um having a balance between the mind and the body, kind of, you know, all these things. I probably don't really have a language to explore with when it, um, when I'm talking to my mother. But in this moment of crisis in March, and it wasn't just a personal crisis, it felt like it was a crisis for the entire world. And there was no one, nowhere I could appeal to for help. And my one objective was saving her. I felt myself cycling back into my mother's body and mind. And by that, I mean that when she first arrived in in the U.S., when she felt completely devoid of any support networks, saving me or, or saving me from her fate was the only thing I think that drove her. And here I was, decades later, feeling propelled by that singular motivation and that's when I realized I do have so much of my mother in me in the sense that at the end of the day, I'm a survivalist. So pragmatism is what I resort to when it's between life and death. And I knew in March that there were, there were no higher authorities I could appeal to. And Twitter was really the only method I could think of to 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 garner support and hopefully in um in a way 
so that her aid would be allowed back at the facility and so that my mother could um, stay alive. So it, it felt almost like a reflex to me than a decision. And it, it occurred to me that despite all, despite in all the ways that I have become a different person than my mother, I am very much still her daughter. And there's something, you know, terribly tender to me in that it in cycling back into her mind and body at this critical junction in both her life and mine. Thank you for that. That's really beautiful. Were you were you surprised though by the backlash? It, it seems like it was just so intense. Right. I mean, I, 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 I didn't expect it at all. Partly because I think there's a tendency for all of us. I mean, I certainly would be quite myopic. I mean, when I was on Twitter asking for help, I didn't think of, you know, it was a very badly planned publicity campaign. I mean, I had one goal. I was not thinking about the aftershocks or the after effects or who might read this. My one, my only priority was saving my mother. And I kind of naively didn't even think about, you know, the way that everything is preserved on the internet and how many people can be reading social media at, at um, any one time. And uh, it, it came as, you know, a complete um, shock to me that that people on the other side of the world would be reading my Twitter because, you know, the, China also has a very robust social media, you know, in Weibo and Weixing. It's not Twitter. Twitter is, 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 is um, predominantly English language. And, and I, I guess I just, I could not have anticipated the way that it would trigger something um, in, in not only in a single Chinese person, but seemingly an entire country, the way that this story would be, would be a narrative of betrayal that instantly was marketable on Chinese social media. And I also, I think, didn't realize how much I had taken my own freedoms here in the West for granted. I am you know, before I wrote this piece, I was writing mostly about China. I would go to China to report on not very overtly political issues, but on Chinese society and on um, the Chinese, you know, economy and various social phenomenon in China. And there was something very, I guess, arrogantly American about my um, belief that I could write the way that I saw, you know, I, I could document the truth the way I saw fit and that I didn't need to bow to a higher political authority and I didn't need to ask for the permission of any political entities before um, publication. That as long as, you know, all New Yorker pieces are fact-checked, as long as the, the piece was journalistically responsible, I thought I would be okay. And there's a certain level of American arrogance there. And, and uh, the backlash made me see myself not as, you know, this liberal, enlightened uh, writer that I believe myself to be, but as um, a pawn in a much, in a, in a, in a global uh, political game. And, 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 you know, that is both demoralizing and humbling. I, I see now how conveniently, you know, 
China was able to co-opt my narrative, partly because, you know, again, because of that duality of inside and outside of, you know, the, the, the grim and graphic nature of, of my mother's plight and the fact that I had, I had documented this and offered it up social media. And this is not something that Chinese people do. You know, they, they keep their dirty laundry inside their homes. And it seemed it seemed very convenient for 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 Chinese social media to then shape this shape this narrative into a traitor who ultimately got what she deserved. She betrayed China, and now her mother is dying, and that you know it's very fitting, and that 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 befits the fate of a traitor. So so that was you know that turn of events was very surprising to me. But I shouldn't have been surprised in retrospect as as a reporter on the China beat because, especially in the middle of a pandemic, because we are so interconnected to um, each other in the world. And, and my story always can always be co-opted by someone else. And that is not something, you know, to have to have control over your own narrative is a luxury. And that is something I I think I have really I've come to newly appreciate in light of what has happened. Yeah, stylistically, it was so, it was really interesting how you use the third person. Also, uh, you said, "I do not presume to know this character." Speaking about yourself, and you also <laughs> you also talk about the being an alter ego and also a villain. And it's just so interesting, right? Because you're a reporter, you probably don't usually use the first person in your reporting. Mm-hmm. Here's an essay; mm-hmm. it's mostly in first person, but you're also using the third. Did that just come to you stylistically, or did that come over time? No, I mean, that felt very, I mean, that was the first, that, that was the, um, I don't recognize this giant fan. I mean, that was literally something that I think I said to myself almost out loud that felt reflexive because it's so accorded with my experience of watching the story of giant fan grow on social media. And it occurred to me that were I approaching that, the story as a circumspect reporter, I would probably at least give some credence to the wi- widely held belief that she is a traitor to her nation, right? Like, I would think, well, it's not that I believe in gossip, but usually there's some kernel of, 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 of a story there that becomes the engine of gossip. And I saw myself as almost a character in this diorama um, that was serving a political purpose. And I also was able to you know, see myself as a character in my own private story. I mean, not just as the panicked, anxious, um, uh, or the emotions that I feel from the inside, that I feel like I'm constantly trying to survive from the inside, but as an embattled daughter who's trying to save my mother, but who also has really complicated feelings about her mother. I think that sometimes that remove is the greatest instrument when you're trying to be truthful about a situation. And that remove is never entirely fully possible, right? But when you're writing about things that are so intensely close to the bone, I think you have to you have to give yourself enough distance to be able to even articulate the situation. And seeing Jai Young Fan as both this this villain in in a political drama, but also as um a character and an object of both, of both, you know, like worthy of both pity and reflection and, and 
and hopefully, you know, redemption was was useful to me in being able to tell this story. Or else you would have just kind of, you know, when you write about yourself, sometimes, you know, things have a way of all turning into mush because it's so close. But that distance is what kind of allows the narrative to solidify into something more coherent and more intelligible to a person from the outside. I really appreciate that that piece on on distance as well as like the arc. I'm now thinking, rethinking the arc of of your piece and also thinking of the ending. You have said during our conversation multiple times about your relationship with your mother and the complicatedness of it. But then at the end, it just seems a whole lot more like it makes sense. And I just I just had to stop when I read that a clean body needs no washing. And it just, mm. I did not expect it. I have to say, I didn't expect it. I wanted to sort of see sort of how you felt in that moment when you received that word from your mother. It just seems to be not like what I would have expected given the piece before. Right. And I, yeah, I, I'm grateful, you know, for um, for the number of readers who have asked me questions about the, the ending. And sometimes we've also felt perplexed by the ending because, you know, a story torn from real life oftentimes does not have the clean cut ending that we see in, you know, in movies um, or in morality tales. And I am, and people have asked me, well, do you think your mom has changed? You know, what, what do you think has, you know, motivated her shift? I don't think she really has changed. I think that, I don't think she's become a different person. I mean, she, you know, she, she, she's completely bed bound, you know, as is apparent in the story, she's not really there for, for a lot of the for a lot of the, the action sequences, as, as it were, of the of the story. But but I think that she does the pragmatic part of her, I think would have understood I why I did what I did. And and a clean body needs no washing. It's not exactly an absolution and it's not it's not I'm not sure if she is completely, you know, wiping the 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 clean slate the, the, the slate clean for me, as it were. But she is saying that, you know, it's someone who hasn't done anything wrong has has nothing to atone for. And you yourself know. You yourself know more than anyone else if you have done anything wrong. And so that statement to me felt particularly poignant because because it, it seems so universal and it seems to get at a truth that I feel deeply, which is that, you know, as a writer, as someone who makes a living off of reflecting on the world around me and on myself, I know more than anyone else, you know, it's in the deepest part of myself, whether I feel you know, guilt or shame or embarrassment and whether I deserve to, you know, to feel those feelings. And, and ultimately, you know, I know if, you know, if that part of myself is clean, whether my conscience is clean, really. And, uh, and I think the fact that she doesn't really know enough of the story to, to offer any, to, 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 to offer another verdict, nor does she, nor has she ever thought to like, you know, seek exoneration on my behalf, right? That, 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 that's just not, like, she's not, she doesn't care about that. And she doesn't really, uh, uh, and that's what I actually find most, like, tender about that statement. And also the fact that she hasn't transformed into a different person, because I don't, I don't think that's realistic. 
And I, I don't think she, you know, I don't think any of us really, really do that overnight or sometimes even over long stretches of time. But ultimately, I think she knew that I did something because I truly believed in it and that I ultimately must live with my own conscience and that it was up to me to decide, you know, what colors my conscience. And, and, and that felt deeply, you know, more deeply comforting than anything else she could have said. Thank you so much, uh, Jai Young. I have one final question for you, if that's okay. Of course. And that is, how is your mother doing now? And how are you doing now? Nine or 10, nine months from all of this? Well, my, so my mother is still at, you know, the same nursing facility that she, you know, was at, she has been at the last six years. And she, and she, she has her aide by her side. But it, but I haven't seen her in going on a month now because they keep making COVID discoveries at the facility. I haven't been getting many details. So I'm assuming it's a staff member, but I don't really know. So in some ways, things haven't really changed that much. You know, I, I am not, I'm not seeing her and I'm only able to communicate um, with her by, by video. But for me, I, I think I'm, I'm probably not feeling, um, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly um, a cheerful person on a daily basis, nor am I terribly optimistic about um, 2021. But I think I'm in a better place or at least a calmer place than I was in March of 2020. And part of it has just been the freedom of being able to write this piece. I didn't expect that wasn't why I wrote it. And I didn't expect to feel any different after writing it, except for perhaps the fear of exposure that, you know, that, that, that the writer of a very personal piece inevitably feels prior to publication. But, but one unexpected upshot is that I feel freer. And that doesn't mean that like I feel like I've kind of been transformed into, you know, a better person or a healthier person or like a more enlightened person. But I feel but I do feel lighter. And I, I didn't expect that. I, 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 I don't know what exactly I expected. But I think the lightness and the freedom comes from the fact that I don't I don't think that I don't expect to be celebrated for this piece. But I also know that once I have told the world my story, you're free to judge me as you see fit. And if you think I am, if you think I'm a smaller person, or if you think I am a poor, pathetic person, that is a decision that you will you know, take ownership of. And I no longer have to fear what you might think of me. I no longer have to cower from your judgments. And that feels like a lightness in itself. And that's, and that's been very illuminating to me. Um, the feeling that you are free to cast your judgments on me now. I understand because I've given you all the pieces of information you need to make a judgment about me. But that judgment will always belong to you. And my story will belong to me. That is so powerful. Thank you so much. I don't know if article clubbers are going to cast any judgment on you, but if we do, it's going to be all it's going to be all positive. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing so deeply, so personally. Thanks for making the time for Article Club. I personally appreciate it. I really enjoy these conversations and thank you for, you know, thoughtful questions and I and I and I look forward to sharing this on on Twitter. Cool. Thank you so much. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. 
I want to thank Jai Young once again for joining us at Article Club and for sharing so generously. Thank you so, so much. If you would like to participate in our discussion this month, I would be very honored. You can sign up at highlighter.cc discussion or find out more information at articleclub.org. Also, please feel free to email me at mark at highlighter.cc. Thank you again, and I hope that you have a great week.